Pardon. I'm just <laughs> faffing around with stuff. How are you feeling? Well, like I, shite. I, I, I couldn't really be a person this morning, so it's, it's been quite the uh, turnaround. It's been quite the journey. So how did the, the play get into your house? Kids. Were, was it the children? It's always the children. It's always the children. <laughs> you get, the you children. get told something like, oh, yeah, we've had a little bit of this or that at the, um, at the school, and you're just thinking, oh, God. Uh, what child is to blame? Name and shame. I, d- I don't know. Um, Both of them. <laughs> well, th- I don't think it's ours, to be fair. I think they were just carriers. Oh, I see. So they're okay, are they? Yeah, yeah. They're uh, absolutely fine. Oh, I suppose their um, schools are full of germy, snotty children. All oh! the time. And you yes. see them as you're dropping the kids off, and you're like, that, that kid's seriously ill. Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser-known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with... Go. Go. Do it. Do it now. Go! (laughs) Okay, let's see if we can do this. So, this story starts in the Georgian era. Ah, yes. It it doesn't really stay there, I'm afraid. Okay, Okay, fine. Because on February 4th, 1818, a baby boy called Joshua Abraham Norton was born in Deptford in Kent. Lovely area. Mm. And with the names Joshua Abraham Norton, Jewish Jewish family, would you believe? Mm. He was the second child of John and Sarah Norton, a Jewish couple who were becoming disillusioned with the farming life of southeastern England at the time. Okay. We know this because in 1819 they applied to leave the country altogether as part of a government scheme to settle the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa. Oh, that sounds nice, doesn't it? Mm. The the Cape of Good Hope. But uh, it's a bit of a rugged landscape, but... Okay. It's, it's no, something I don't, completely different. I don't know much about um, African geography, which is terrible, isn't it? But um, obviously I know where South Africa is, but I couldn't tell you where places were in relation to The west South coast Africa. of South Africa. Okay. Towards the, towards the bottom. The Cape of Good Hope had first been settled by Europeans in 1652, when Dutch traders established a trading colony there. The colony had been successful and had steadily expanded throughout the rest of the 1600s. But then, the Dutch made the mistake of allowing around 4,000 British to settle to the east of the Dutch-occupied territories. The Dutch always got there first, didn't they? And then we were like, no. We said, oh, well, can you just let us have a little bit? Just just on the edge over there. We promise we'll be good. No. The Dutch had believed that these Brits would act as a convenient buffer between their own settlements and the indigenous people that they had displaced. After all, they had already fought two separate wars against the Khoikhoi people within the first 20 years of being there, and it would be nice to have someone else fight them on their behalf. Yep. Makes sense. You know, you're like, yes, you can, you can have the um, disputed lands. Go for it. What, what we learn through history, and especially this podcast, is you should never, ever trust the British. Mm. They say one thing and they do another. Because what they'd actually done is they'd given them a toehold. And in 1795, they used their long-standing inland colony as an excuse to implement a military occupation of the entire Cape. Yeah, of course they did. We'll have the East and the West, thank you. They said it was to prevent the Dutch from handing control of the colony, including the little British enclave, to the French, who the British were at war with at the time. Mm. 
still like well, with, with which time they've been at war with them many a times uh this was what 1819 1795 where did, did i get 18 18 from that's when I he was born that. okay fine yeah he's born in 1818 so he's born after they'd uh you know just claimed the entire thing and instilled a military sort of force yeah the British pretended to give the colony back to the Dutch in 1802, before reconsidering and reinvading again in 1806. How'd you pretend to give a colony back? Well, they'd said, "Look, we've we've got to install um, sort of military rule here, just to ensure that you don't give the colony to the French, um, because we don't want them to have this sort of you know trading route. We don't want them to have this advantage over us." Mm. And then in 1802, they went, "Okay." We will let you start to, you know, take back your your colonies. I watched the French football game today. You watched them lose? Yeah. yeah. Still went through, though. Mm. And they, they were playing the second string team, I guess. Bonsoir. It's a good night for them, indeed. Mm. But, yeah, by 1806, we were like, wasn't it great when we had all the revenues from that, that uh, Dutch colony we'd just taken why don't we just take it again and we can keep the money? <laughs> this new ownership was a mixed bag for the locals. Mm. In 1807, the British ended the trade in slaves, mm. though not yes. the ownership of people who were already slaves. Mm. They then immediately followed up this liberal move by passing laws to restrict the movement of any and all indigenous people in the region in 1809. Oh God, I hate them so much. These actions led to the fourth Hosa Frontier War in 1811, the three previous wars having taken place when the Dutch were in control. The British won under the leadership of Colonel John Graham, who insisted on a humane approach, stating that he would use, and this is a direct quote from the man in charge of the region... This is not going to be humane, is it? No more bloodshed than was necessary to impress on the minds of these savages a proper degree of terror and respect. <laughs> In that order, I imagine. We want them to be terrified of us and also to respect us. Isn't it funny how people are not terrified of us now and they don't respect us? We've lost all of that. Yeah, although to be fair, I would have kept the respect and lost the terror. Mm. I'm reading a book at the moment called Britain Alone and it's from the Sears Canal thing after the war to Brexit. And it's basically saying it's not even Britain alone now, it's England alone. Mm. (laughs) Like, it's just so bizarre how uh, glory has gone. Yeah, but every empire has to go through that. Mm. And then you end up a bit like Greece, where you're like, we were very important once, you know? Come and look at our artefacts. Yeah. Although we can't even say that. We're like, come and look at other people's artefacts that we have here. (laughs) There's nothing British about the British Museum. I think it's the most British thing in the world. We've claimed it. Theft. Yeah. (laughs) Having instilled terror, the British then formalised their ownership of the colony with the other European powers by paying the Dutch a sum of £6 million in 1814. In in that money or today's money? That was in then money. So it was quite a sum that was paid. But it was an amazing, you know in terms of the quality of the land, in terms of the, you know, the trade routes that it opened It was a up. good buy. Oh, it was a bargain at six million. Mm. You know, and there was a little bit of, and we'll give you six million, and the Dutch going, I think it's worth more than that. It's like, yes, but 
We, but this is we our practically offer. own it anyway. This is just us <laughs> giving you a chance to save face. So, you know, you can say you sold it to us rather than we took it. So it's up to you, but it's not going to go above six million. But following yet another frontier war in 1818, the governor of the Cape Colony, Charles Somerset, wrote to the Houses of Parliament asking that more settlers be sent out because the ones he'd had had got a bit damaged with all the fighting. Okay. So we needed, so we needed, needed reinforcements. Yeah. In July 1819, a £50,000 fund for the British settler scheme was announced. With every man selected, promised free passage and a plot of 100 acres of land on arrival to help to develop an agrarian farming community. Okay, so that was the attraction. So they'd, yeah. they'd be like, if you come over here, we'll give you some land and you'll be like... To do with what you will, yeah. Yeah, okay. So whereas in England or the UK, Kent, they wouldn't be able to do that. Either had a much smaller plot of land and there was loads of, you know, having to deal with the local landowners and, oh, you don't actually own this land. You you kind of rent the land and da-da-da-da-da. So it was sold as an attractive place to go. Oh, yeah. You know, the whole, oh, it's so easy to grow stuff. You know, you spit some apple seeds and within a year you've got a, a, an orchard. It's that good, the soil. I can see the attraction. Like, obviously, they're not going to tell you the bad stuff about it, are they? They're just going to be like, oh, it's just, it's plentiful. Um, yeah. In order to try and limit the amount of people going for the scheme, they uh, said that you had to put up a £10 deposit uh, if you wanted to apply to show Which that quite a lot of money, yeah, back then to show that you were serious, really. Um, but even so, they received ninety thousand applicants. Mm, okay, Which fine. A, I mean, it's a fair old whack of population. That I can imagine, though, that when people get there, it's not the dream that they were promised. Uh, I read that a lot when people emigrated over to America, like the first settlers and stuff. They were yeah, of... but a lot of those guys went over as indentured servants, didn't they? Hmm. So it's like, we'll, we'll pay for your passage, you just have to work for free for seven years. A lot of people, what I, from what I can gather, who originally went over to America uh, were religious nuts. Uh, no, they wanted the freedom to practice religion in their own way. They were religious nuts, and I think that's why America is a cult at the moment. <laughs> Um, I've been to America and it's a lovely place, but it's a cult. Well, originally, of course, the whole One Nation Under God thing wasn't supposed to be part of the Constitution. Mm. They, well, they added... To be separation of church and state. They added... So money never used to say, in God we trust on it. That was added later on, like mm. in the 50s or something, which is mad. Anyway, I know we're not talking about America, but that was my segue. Well, <clears throat> this, in order to improve their chances of success... The applicants for the um, Cape Settlement Scheme, they formed themselves into cooperatives, so larger groups, uh, who promised to offer mutual assistance to increase the chances of their settlements becoming established and fending off any attacks from the local Hosa people. Mm-hmm. So the, the idea was um, the government preferred large groups who sort of submitted their applications together, saying, we're all going <sighs> to... So they're know, a unit. Yeah, we're going to be a ready-made town. We're not just going to be individual farmers. We're all going to agree to to support each other, to, to offer mutual aid. So there's mm. much more chance of us getting So there's town planning and stuff that goes into this as well, would you say? Do you reckon someone goes over there and is like, right, we're going to build a main road here and your farm's going to be 
here and the church is going to be here? I don't I don't know. I mean, I, I would have thought because they were giving people 100 acres at a time, it was, well... You, carved out. Yeah, you've got this, this amount of land as a co-op. You decide what you want to do with it. it mm-hmm. Are you going to have homesteads dotted around? Are you going to have a main town that sort of radiates out to all the farms? How, however they wanted to do it, it seemed to be, yeah. you know, one of the attractions. It's like, oh, we get to decide. Yeah, that's nice. John and Sarah joined a cooperative led by a man called Thomas Wilson and set off with their two children from Deptford on the LaBelle Alliance oh, in February of 1820. The third child, Philip, was born en route and they would go on to have a further nine children once they arrived on June the 2nd after a four-month journey. Well, I suppose there was nothing to do if it's a non-settled community at the moment. But just the idea of having to give birth on a ship during a four-month voyage. I mean, How well, dirty and grim that was You wouldn't be. have to. <laughs> no, but just... Yeah, no, but... You wouldn't want your my uh, partner yeah. to do that, yeah. She's like, oh, no, this is... This no, is I'm really sorry timing. I did this to you. Yeah. We can't get you anything else. There is no pain relief on the entire ship. We finished <laughs> the rum two weeks ago. Everyone is literally sitting there watching you suffer and give birth. But once they arrived, John decided that he didn't actually want to be a farmer anymore, despite having, you know, joined a scheme to create an agrarian community. Uh, he instead decided he wanted to enter the world of business. Yeah. And he became a, a merchant. And yeah. a mem- Oh, yeah, your computer's going... Is it... Why does it do that? I'm not even... Hold on, why are you doing this, you piece of shit? So, once they'd arrived, and despite the fact that he had agreed specifically to go to the Cape in order to join an agrarian farming community... John decided he didn't want to be a farmer anymore. He got there and he's like, mm, 100 acres. <laughs> Not for is, me. It's quite a lot, isn't it? After that journey. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to do this no more. I've developed agoraphobia. I don't really want to be in this wide open space. So he decided instead that he'd become a merchant and a member of the Freemasons uh, by 1826. Okay, fine. It turned out he had the gift of the gab uh, and he managed to gain some plum contracts with the British Army going on to become not only the right worshipful master of the Albany Lodge in 1838. People just give themselves titles, don't they? Oh, no, this, he, he, he was leading the uh, Freemasons, basically, in that in the case. Every time I think of Freemasons, I think of the Simpsons episode. The Stonecutters. Yeah. <laughs> OK, so he's taken on Homer Simpson's role in the Stonecutters episode. But not Perfect. only that, in 1838, he became the director of the Grahamstown Bank. Ah, okay. So he's multi, multi, multi-talented. I don't know what word I was looking for then. I was like multi, multi the town something. Naturally, had been named after Colonel Graham and his humane terror. So of they course. decided that you know his his uh, great idea of humanely terrorising the locals meant that he should have uh, one of the major towns in the area named after him. Did he have a statue? I'm sure he did. Mm. I'm sure it showed him brandishing. A sword at an indigenous person, <laughs> in, a, in a paternal way. Yes, it's the only way they'll learn. We must beat the savages until they become civilized. But while John went from strength to strength, his son Joshua found life hard in the Cape. He attended John Hancock's school in Grahamstown before trying to set up as a merchant, just like his dad. Okay, but his business 
a couple of hours away in Port Elizabeth, failed, and in 1842, when he was in his mid-30s, Joshua had been forced to accept a job in his father's company to make ends meet. Uh... So he'd, he'd tried to go and plough his own furrow, and he'd had to, had to come had back to, come to back. the family and go, Daddy... Papa. Daddy, can I have a job with you, Daddy? No. You can. You can be stock boy. Now go into the warehouse and count the stock. Oh, that's so dull. Well, you've got to teach them. Mm. You've got to, they've got to learn. This reliance on his father obviously didn't sit well with Joshua, and in 1845 he decided to return to England to strike out on his own. Mm. We don't know what he tried in England... But it obviously didn't work out, as in February 1846, he was a passenger on a steamship called Sunbeam that was chugging its way across the Atlantic towards Boston in America. Okay. Oh, so he'd gone. He'd not gone. He'd not returned to South Africa. Oh no, he's he doesn't want to return to South Africa, you know, and ask his dad's help a second time. He's like, okay, the thing in Liverpool didn't work out. Let's try Boston. I'm sure there's there's opportunities for a man such as myself. Tea party there. Oh, we're a few years after the tea party now. We'll have more tea parties. <laughs> I'm, sh- I'm sure, since they threw all of that tea into the ocean, they'll be gagging for a cuppa. Mm. And I happen to have the last consignment of PG tips. <laughs> Again, we don't know what business deals he was cooking up in New England. What we do know is that while he was off in the world, his father John had declared bankruptcy. <gasps> and okay. he'd had to return to England to try and rebuild his fortune there. Ah, uh, so it wasn't going well. Mm. And it didn't get much better because he didn't get much time to rebuild his fortune before he died on August 20th, 1848. Oh. I suppose it happens to us all, doesn't it? But what was bad news for John was actually quite good news for Joshua because by this time he was the oldest surviving son and he was entitled to what remained of the estate, which we can okay. assume was around $40,000. Oh, sure. Hold up, but he'd been de- his dad had been c- declared bankrupt, so yes. surely there was nothing left. Well, you'd think that, but this is the thing. Rich people get to be declared insolvent, declared bankruptcy, all of these different things, and that's his businesses. So his businesses were bankrupt. Ah, oh, so they get to pers- keep... He kept his personal wealth. At- okay. So all, all the money he'd funneled off his businesses into private accounts, it was like, well, the businesses are, are broke, but I'm still relatively wealthy so there's a way around it if you know there's always a way around it if you're rich and you can afford good accountants Mm. but we can assume that the inheritance was around forty thousand dollars because on november the 5th 1849 joshua abraham norton arrived in san francisco aboard a steamer called franzica which had sailed it had sailed from rio in brazil though again what joshua had been doing in rio no one knows for sure What's, isn't there a song called Rio? Her yeah. Name Rio. Rio and she dances on the sun. Yeah. yeah. I would have thought you'd, you'd know that one. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, I do. Quite, I just Quite famous. Yeah, yeah. Is it Duran Duran? It is, yeah. It's the oh. video where they're on a boat. Although not a steamer, I believe that was a sailboat. Oh, I was going to say, was it, was it, wasn't it the, the Rio? Not the Rio. You know what I meant. You know what I meant. Mm. But Go on. 1849 was a big year in California history as it marked the start of the gold rush. It's the reason that the San Francisco uh, American football team are called the San Francisco 49ers. It's in honour of the year the gold rush really kicked off. I mean, I think the first gold was found in uh, 1848, but 
it took a little while for everybody to go nuts. Uh, That's and interesting. Passage together. I, when I went to San Francisco, mm. uh, I didn't realise how many hills there were. Oh, it's so, all hills. Well, like you'd look on Google Maps and you'd be like, oh, yeah, I just need to go like three blocks that way. But they don't tell you it's three blocks up a 90 degree bloody angle. <laughs> <laughs> You're like sweating by the time you get to the top of it. Although I did find Mrs. Doubtfire's house when I was up there. Oh, that must Steiner have been Street. Yeah. Was that what you were going to look for? Yeah. Was that the specific thing that you tried to find? 100%. Yeah, and I found it. Well done, you. Steiner Street. It's very nice. It's lovely. So, like I say, San Francisco had started the year, you know, 1849, as a town of around 1,000 people, give or take. But within seven years, this had grown to well over 50,000 as people flocked to the West Coast to try and strike it rich. So it, it just went nuts. Hmm. And, you know, you're saying about the town planning. There was no town planning for San Francisco at this point. No. It was just, we we need more accommodation. Just People build in anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun, uh, again, sorry, uh, side story. When you're going around San Francisco, they're like, oh, yeah, underneath this bit of land is like an old ship that's buried underneath here and stuff. Because the, the harbour used to be a lot closer inland, mm. but they filled it in as they ran out of space. So they almost, like, extended, extended the, the shoreline. Yeah. yeah, so they're like, oh, yeah, and then there's a there's an old steamboat under here and there's this here and that's buried under this massive skyscraper and stuff. And you're like, this is really far inland. It just proves how much uh, the population boomed and they needed the space. And naturally... It wasn't the people who were going there to try and strike it rich, uh, you know, panning for gold, who were going to actually make any money. Uh, it was the businessmen who mm. provided the supplies and the housing that made the rapid expansion possible. Yeah. And seeing that he'd been lucky enough to arrive at the perfect moment to cash in, Norton established a new business venture, the Joshua Norton and Company Company, which specialised in real estate and imports. Great. It was essentially a license to print money at that time. Yeah. You know, because every, everyone who was there needed the basic supplies because, you know, the, the sort of Bay Area had set up, but there was no overland routes, really. Um, no. Consistent overland routes to bring supplies in, so it was all being brought in by shipping, and if you were involved in that, you could set your own price for most things. San Francisco Bay is really dangerous. It's, like, really deep, and there's, like, two or three currents that, like, swing and, like, clash in one direction. It's mad. Mm. Like It's the reason Alcatraz works so well, because even if you could get into the water, um, mm. trying to swim from the island to the to the sort of mainland was I just really so, wish so difficult. We don't know, but I really wish those people that were said to have escaped or drowned, depending on your view... I wanted them to escape, like, I wanted them to be able to swim across that. Although I got a ferry over there and that's it's a bit of a trek. Mm. And I you s- imagine doing that in the dead of night when it's freezing cold? Mm. Yeah, yeah. They, they probably drowned. Anyway, within three years, Norton had managed to convert his $40,000 into a whopping $250,000, which would be around 8 mil today. So he's suddenly doing well. Mm. His real estate holdings were so vast at this point that his hobnobby business friends began jokingly referring to him as the Emperor. (gasps) 
Yes. Because he ruled all he surveyed. Good lad. Then, in late 1852, Norton was given an offer that seemed just too good to pass up. Okay. It turned out that the Asian rice harvest had been particularly bad that year. Okay. This had led to a series of famines in China that would eventually spark two separate armed rebellions, the Nian and Taiping rebellions, respectively. Okay. Which are estimated to have caused between 10 and 30 million casualties. What? I know, just ridiculous numbers. But People just really hangry and depressed. <laughs> hangry and oppressed. Yeah. I'm hangry and oppressed and I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm going to smash some shiz up. But for the purposes of this story, we, we don't care about what was going on in China because more importantly, at least for, you know, people like Norton, the guy we're following, the wholesale cost of rice in America had reached a ridiculously inflated 36 cents per pound. From a starting point of around four cents, this represented a 900% price increase. Wow. Yeah. Just, so when, when we complain about our, uh, you know, 13.3%. Um, so it does confuse me when we get any... Because I was always told, now give me a quick maths lesson, mm. that nothing can be more than 100%. Like, that is the top. That's what I was always told the end but then you hear like like you just said 900 percent. you hear on the news like it's increased 700 percent. so in my mind i'm like how can it how can it if 100 is the top well 100 in this case is 100 percent was four cents so if it had gone up to six cents it would be um up by 50 percent because it had gone 50 percent higher than it had been to start with okay so the 100 percent is the starting mark it's the starting mark and then if it gets seven times more expensive than that, then it's 700%. Yeah. and in this case, we're at 900% on rice. Why couldn't my maths teacher just tell me that? You've explained that really simply to me, and now I understand it. This could have been done years ago. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. you Where were you, Joe? Where were you? <laughs> but, I mean, just the idea, no one was eating curry at this time, I believe. Sushi, pff, no chance. You can get hold of sushi. It's disgusting. Save your life. But when a merchant entering San Francisco Harbour sought out Norton and offered him a deal on rice for only 12.5 cents per pound, he immediately saw an opportunity to double his money practically overnight. Was it actually rice, though, they bought? Oh, yeah, it was rice. Oh, OK. The merchant had brought his rice from Peru in South America rather than from Asia, and he was willing to sell Norton as much as he wanted. He just had What's to... the catch? Well, there were two conditions. Okay. Firstly, when I say he was willing to sell as much as he wanted, he said to Norton, I'm only going to sell it to you if you'll buy the entire shipment, uh, which okay. at the price he was quoting would be approximately $25,000 worth of rice. And the second proviso on this too good to pass up deal was that he signed the contract immediately. Um, I didn't read it. I mean, what, what's the to read? There'd be small print in there. I now own your firstborn child or something. I don't know. Well, Norton, he was convinced that it was indeed the deal of the century because he would be the only merchant with rice in the entire Bay Area. Ah. So anyone wanting rice would have to come to him and yep. he could double the markup that he you know, spent. He could okay. ask for 25 so get... cents on the and pound and it was still yeah, it was still massively cheaper hmm. than what anyone else could offer so yeah. he was like you know what it's okay uh, and on December 22nd 1852 
he signed the contract and handed over £2,000 cash as a down payment. Okay. So he's, he's done the deal and he's ready to begin flipping that rice for profit. Yeah. The next day, though, another ship that was full of Peruvian rice arrived in the harbour. Then another. And then another one turned up. In fact, many ships stuffed to the gills with Peruvian rice arrived over the next two weeks. So he's been conned. The guy's been selling this to, like, loads of people. Well, I think the guy, he just realised he was the first person to arrive with his shipment and no one knew that any any other ships were coming well, in behind no him. Way. Yeah. yeah. So he was just like, if I can sell it today before the other ships arrive, I can I can make a massive profit. <sighs> yeah. Because it's a lie of omission, mm-hmm. you know. How long does rice keep for? Uh, quite a while. Mm. Although that's quite a good question because one of the things that um, Norton quickly learned was that all the other shipments of rice were of far superior quality to the stuff that he had signed his contract to purchase. So he got the knockoff stuff. Well, I think not that there's knockoff. You can't have knockoff rice, surely. Rice I'm, is rice. I'm thinking, reading between the lines, that the reason this guy got to San Francisco before the other ships was because he hadn't really put as much effort into correctly storing the rice and making sure mm. that the shipment was going to get there unspoiled. He was just like. If I can get there first, I'm sure I can find some rube to sell it to. Yeah. And then it's not my problem anymore. You know, it's... No, true. Sold as seen. Yep, sold as seen. You know, you signed the contract. It didn't say that there'd be any, you know, stipulation if if, if more the rice, rice was arrived. bad. Yeah. yeah. With the sudden dramatic increase in supply, the cost of rice plummeted to only three cents per pound. Though, <sighs> with his shoddier rice, Norton would have been lucky to get two. So he's made a loss, a a significant loss. Oh, yes. And he was horrified. Mm. I'm not a gambling man. I would never do any of this stuff. That's what business is on the most basic level. A lot of this sort of speculative merchant stuff is is just gambling. Which is why I'm not a businessman. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, Joshua Norton was a businessman, but do you know what else he was? A failure. (laughs) He was now an American. So he decided to respond in an appropriately American way and he took the merchant he had bought the rice from to court mm. to try and void the contract on the grounds that he had been misled. Mm-hmm. So he's like, I'll did... see you in court, you son of a bitch. How did that go for him? Uh, well, he spent two years um, mm. in the legal system and after two years of spending money on lawyers and you know all the court dates, a judge found against him and Norton realised that when factoring in the massive legal fees he had incurred and the fact that he had stopped focusing on his other businesses during a two-year spell, because he was all focused on the courts, his fortune had effectively disappeared. Oh, what? So, like, no, you do need to give this guy the remaining £23,000. Also, your lawyers want all of the money that you owe them to be paid in full. Also, you haven't really been doing any of your business deals that you should have been doing, so that's just whittled away to practically nothing this as well. This is not the time of no win, no fee. No, 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 no. You don't see them adverts on telly much anymore, do you? I think everybody pretty much knows. It's part of the public consciousness. You'd be very mm. uh, put out if you went to any of these sort of ambulance-chasing legal firms and it wasn't yeah. no win, no fee. Mm. Although legal aid doesn't exist anymore, does it? Uh, it does, in a very limited way. Mm. Very, very limited way. You can. You may have to bounce for a sandwich. Mm. <laughs> Well, subsidised. You can get subsidised food at the courts. 
Um, but you will have to pay for your uh, solicitor. Like they do at the Houses of Parliament. Oh, don't. We're not, we're not a politics show. Oh, no, I keep going back to it. People always say to me, like, you're like a historian. Like, why do you, why do you talk about politics all the time? But they're so interlinked. Oh, God, yeah. But the, so... we're not getting into current politics, I should say. No. Because, funnily, Norton, he, um, to try and supplement his income, he tried to get a second job. Uh, and ran to be appointed San Francisco tax collector in 1855. Mm-hmm. Probably thinking, that's a plum job. If I'm tax collector, I can embezzle the shit out of some money here. Mm. You know, I can yeah, shake people down. Yeah, just put 50p aside, not 50p, 50 cents aside every yeah. now and then. Yeah, just, you know, take a small cut. Just mm. you know, maybe 1% off the top, and I'll slowly rebuild my fortune that way. Yeah. Um, but he failed to get elected. And he had to file for bankruptcy, just like his dear old dad, in August 1856. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. No. And the shame of it. The shame. The embarrassment. Because, you know, he had joined the Freemasons as well, like his dad. So he had to go to his fellow Masons and say, actually, I'm now bankrupt. And Is that a big thing in the Freemasons? Then? I, I like... assume it's not the kind of thing that you want to admit to a group of mm. men in businessy, high-power positions. It probably affected, yeah. you know, his, his standing at the lodge. His status. But it was all so embarrassing that the situation appeared to break the brain of Joshua Abraham Norton. Uh-uh. He moved into a cheap boarding house on Kearney Street and slipped into a depressive state that lasted for the better part of three years. It was not in a good place. Then, in July of 1859, Norton took out a paid ad in the San Francisco Daily Evening Bulletin which was a newspaper, yeah. back when there were about 50 newspapers in every city, <laughs> and they all had variations on Daily, Bulletin, Star. You know, it's all the same things, just mixed together in different ways. Yeah. His ad wasn't really an ad. It was actually a manifesto addressed to the citizens of the Union. Mm-hmm. It outlined what Norton described as a national crisis and suggested what needed to be done to save the country. Okay. Now, he must have received some positive feedback for his manifesto because Norton became convinced over the next few months that he was the only man with the skills and understanding and wisdom to be able to save America. Oh, I want him to get elected now. That was why, on September 17th, 1859, Norton made his way to the offices of the San Francisco Bulletin again. Mm. This time dressed in a baggy, faded blue military-type uniform, complete with gilt epaulettes and shiny brass buttons, a beaver hat decorated with coloured feathers, and a ceremonial sword. But he'd never served in the military? No. Okay. He asked the indulgence of the editor to make a proclamation. Okay. And this is what he proclaimed. At the preemptory request of a large majority of the citizens of these United States, I, Joshua Norton formerly of Algoa Bay, Cape of Good Hope, and now for the last nine years and ten months past of San Francisco, California, declare and proclaim myself Emperor of these United States. And in virtue of the authority thereby in me vested, do hereby order and direct the representatives of the different states of the Union to assemble in Musical Hall of this city on the first day of February next. Then and there to make such alterations in the existing laws of the Union as may ameliorate the evils under which the country is labouring, and thereby cause confidence to exist both at home and abroad in our stability 
and integrity. That's a bold move. It also sounds like he's gone completely off the rails, but ballsy. He signed his proclamation, Norton I, Emperor of the United States. To be fair, I signed some letters, HR... Uh, HRH. Oliver, HRH, sorry, HRH, Oliver I of Englandshire. I'm and not even joking, I do. You feel good about it, don't you? Yeah, I do, yeah. And Norton felt very good about what, he, what he'd done. And he wasted no time in asserting his divine authority. On October the 12th, he made a further proclamation calling for Congress to be abolished. And when this was ignored by Congress... He issued a follow-up proclamation on January 4th, 1860, requesting that the army forcibly clear Congress on his behalf. <laughs> Would you believe this too was ignored? Mm. So he proclaimed on July 26th that the Republic be formally dissolved to be replaced by an absolute monarchy. Okay. Again, this didn't actually end up happening. No. And Emperor Norton may have been dismissed as just another delusional crank if this was all he did. Yeah. But alongside issuing his proclamations, Emperor Norton took the time to connect with his subjects. Okay. He would spend his days walking the streets of San Francisco, ensuring that required street repairs were proceeding in a timely fashion, inspecting new buildings under construction and reviewing the police officers on duty. So just because he can? Because he's the emperor. And he has to make sure that everything is proceeding. Has he got a wife way. and children? Did we follow that? No, we, no, no. He was that? he was a bachelor. Okay. We'll, we'll get to that. Okay. Because he he did have a scheme, a plan. Okay. It, it just intrigued. never came off. Okay. Um, he would also issue more specific proclamations when he felt that the city officials were not doing their jobs. So, although he was emperor of the entirety of the United States, he did take a special interest in San Francisco, as it was his capital city. Okay. Yeah. And if fine. you can't get your capital city to run smoothly, hmm. you know how can you instill confidence that you can run the rest of the country? You need to get your own house in order before hmm. you can, yeah, get other people's houses in order. Emperor Norton also wanted his kingdom to be a very progressive place, and amongst other things, he used ads in newspapers to advocate for the identification and eradication of all forms of corruption that harmed his citizens, be they political, corporate, or personal. The equal treatment of African Americans, demanding that they be allowed to ride public transport and attend public schools. I mean, good for him. Indigenous peoples of America being allowed to publicly punish anyone found to have committed fraud against them. Fine. Women having the right to vote. Yeah, good. Fair taxes in return for good quality public services. Okay, sounds pretty decent now. Mm. And he was very into the idea of utilising the newest technologies for the public good rather than for creating personal wealth. OK, so I'm behind him. All of those things sound pretty good, don't they? Yeah. And amongst the people of San Francisco, they were definitely popular views. It appears that Emperor Norton had unwittingly placed himself into the role of a court jester, a man who was ridiculous enough that he could speak truth to power without facing any ramifications... Amazing. And he did this directly, often attending sessions of the state legislature in Sacramento as part of his emperor duties. So you turn up in his full military garb with the ceremonial yeah. sword and the, the hat with the feathers on it, and he would watch um, the sessions going on at the legislature. 
you know and i love it he kept himself very much abreast of of the politics of the day so that when he did proclaim things he was doing so from a a position of knowledge and understanding i like him Mm. within a year he had reached the status of local celebrity to the point that the san francisco directories available at the time listed him as emperor (gasps) yes so at least in san francisco they were quite happy for him to be the emperor yeah to add to his sense of pageantry whilst making his daily inspections on behalf of his citizens emperor norton adopted two stray dogs called lazarus and bummer (laughs) they followed him everywhere lazarus is uh biblical isn't it yes so what is bummer as in b-u-m-m-e-r bummer the dog yes that was just the name of the dog. I don't know Fine. where the name came from, but Lazarus and Bummer were the royal dogs. I mean, they are in San Francisco, so... <laughs> well, Norton, he would graciously assist dockside merchants by allowing his dogs to perform the role of rat catchers in order to minimise spoilage and financial loss. So he was always willing to help. Because um, he had been, you know, elevated himself from the mercantile class. Mm-hmm. So he was always willing to help fellow merchants by loaning his dogs to do some rat catching he sounds like an all right guy and Mm. uh a bit of a class clown but their class clown and everyone has adopted him as their own yes they've they've taken him to their bosom as it were yes yes now at one point because technically these were stray dogs i mean they followed norton everywhere but he didn't you know take them into his lodging house they just sort of slept on the street and then when he came out to do his morning rounds, they found him. At one point, okay. an overzealous dog catcher took Bummer to the pound. Not Bummer. Yeah. And no, of course, Bummer, no. poor old Norton, he didn't have the funds to, to get Bummer out of the clink. Mm-hmm. But the people of San Francisco, they realised what had happened and they quickly collected the money to pay for him to be released. Oh, brilliant. So a group of, you know, businessmen in San Francisco had a whip round to free Bummer. Oh, I love it. And the city leaders, to make sure that such an affront to the emperor never happened again, quickly granted a special ordinance giving the two dogs the freedom of the city. The dogs got that? The, the stray dogs? dogs. Got... No, not all stray dogs, just Bummer and Lazarus. Okay. So they took the time during, you know, a busy session of trying to sort out city ordinance and all the things that go with running a new metropolitan hub to pass a specific piece of legislation to allow these two dogs to have the run of the city and to not be subject to the laws that would normally pertain to stray dogs, just so that they didn't upset Emperor Norton again. I think it's brilliant. Norton graciously accepted the apologies that were made to him, and based on the new ordinance, he agreed to say no more about it. Well... We've, we've sorted it out and I'm a gracious ruler. I'm not going to hold it over your heads anymore. Hmm. You've made right and that's the most important I, thing, guys. I wouldn't do that. I would have had them executed. <laughs> yeah, just demand executions. Mm-hmm. Now, that's the thing. He, he was progressive. He wasn't for the death penalty. Emperor Norton. Good for him. And what year is this? 18... That's 1860. It's the early 1860s. So very ahead of his time. Mm. On the second anniversary of his emperorship in September 1861, a local theatre reserved Norton seats for the premiere of a new play. The resultant publicity led to record ticket sales, 
and local businesses realised that if they were to provide the emperor with their services for free, his patronage would result in increased profit. So he's a name, he's a brand now. Essentially, local businesses, if Norton frequented, they would put a sign up saying, you know, by appointment. The emperor's here, yeah. By royal appointment, Emperor Norton I. I And that that would lead to people wanting to frequent that restaurant or that shop. So they they give him stuff for free, knowing that the fact that he would allow them then to put up a little sign saying that he, you know, visited. That's so good. So my friend's a singer, so she she wanted to uh, promote herself as, like, an award-winning singer. So loads of us just made up these fake awards and we, like, presented her with them. <laughs> like, so, um, yeah, so now she's an award-winning winning singer. It doesn't mean she's award-winning for the singing. It's yes, just she's won awards. We've, she's won awards. She's a singer who has won awards. We all did it and we thought it was really funny. So now she puts on her posters the award-winning singer. Nobody ever checks those things, do they? Exactly. Yeah. It's like no one has ever asked me for my GCSE results. Ever. What GCSE results? (laughs) If your maths is anything (laughs) to go by. (laughs) Well, yeah, I've only learned... I've learned something today. But seeing as how his citizens were appreciating his efforts, Emperor Norton decided to expand his influence. And in 1863, he added Protector of Mexico to his title in response to Napoleon III capturing Mexico City during the Second Franco-Mexican War. Mexico City that's sinking. That's sinking because it was built on an aquifer that's been drained, yes. Yeah. Now, I have to admit, I didn't even know there'd been a first Franco-Mexican War. No, I didn't either. The idea that there had been two is just amazing to me. Mind-blowing. But despite this, you know intervention by an emperor it didn't appear to have any significant impact on the way that war went and eventually he did give up the title protector of mexico Mm -hmm. um because he felt that they were an unruly bunch who who it would take too much time to to, um, it's a bold claim as well as it saying you're gonna like forever protect yeah another country yeah i mean you you're starting out with america and you're doing a good job i mean he's doing a great job Mm-hmm. They love him. Yeah, but yeah, add, he, he added that too soon, I think. Yeah. He's still early into his emperor career. He could have left it a little bit longer before he offered to protect Mexico. In 1864, the emperor took as his official residence the Eureka Lodging House at 624 Commercial Street. It cost 50 cents a day, and this was often paid for on Norton's behalf by his fellow Freemasons. Okay and former business associates who wanted to make sure that he didn't become entirely destitute because they liked him. Yeah. He was a very amiable guy. He was a very nice person. Yeah. And although he'd fallen on hard times, they're like, well, if, you know, if every now and then I have to pony up 50 cents to make sure he's got a roof over his head... Then I will. Yeah, I'm all right with that. Emperor Norton understood these contributions to be payment of taxes due to him. That's how he squared it away in his own head. (laughs) And it's no one... not charity, they owe it to me. Yeah, it's my taxes. And no one had the heart to challenge him, so they're like, yes, we're just paying our taxes, Emperor. <laughs> and he got, thank you, yes, that's, that will be sufficient. So naturally, having realised that he was now raising taxes, he thought, I might as well take things a step further. And he created his own currency. <laughs> Please tell me he put his face on them. He did. Yes, Emperor Norton issued his own bonds for nearly 20 years. These carried the caveat that they would not become redeemable until 1880. And it was not 
likely that even then they'd be redeemable because there wasn't anything tangible backing them. Okay. So he basically would issue promissory notes in lieu of paying cash for things. So I, would, I owe you. I owe you, and payment can become due in 1880. And he would just hand these out. And do you know what? Do people accept them? Yep. Local businesses accepted them. Shut up. They could That's be brilliant. used as a form of currency in San Francisco in the 1860s and 1870s. Cause, that is so good. But they were literally promissory notes with his face on them. It's like the emperor promises to pay the bearer of this bond, you know, a sum of I love money. That. Payable I might from start 1880. Doing that. Do you know the ma- amazing thing about these bonds? Come on. Today, Emperor Norton bonds are worth up to $30,000. Shut up. Meaning that those businesses that accepted them, you know, to pay for like a $10, you know, shopping spree or whatever. Yeah. They were a sound financial investment. If they kept hold of them. What? Do they still exist? Please they, tell me they still exist. There are examples. They still exist because he printed a lot of them. He, you know, that was his way of paying for things. Was so do you reckon if he, if he printed less of them, they would have been worth more? Um, possibly, but I still think £30,000 for something that wouldn't have been For like a piece it. of paper. Yeah, for a piece yeah. of paper with a, a bloke's head on it who just declared himself emperor. That's That's made some money. That's gone up in value significantly. Oh, Emperor Norton was also able to appeal to his citizens by demonstrating very liberal religious views. Okay. He was in favour of church-state separation, and he warned against the dangers of Puritanism and sectarianism. Mm -hmm. However, he did like a good sermon, and he was a regular churchgoer. Well, he was a Freemason, wasn't he? Mm Mm-hmm. Isn't that is that that that's not a religious thing? No, no, that's that's a business club essentially. What am I thinking of? I don't know. What's the there's um there's a religious thing that's quite culty. There's many religious things that are quite culty. All of them. Anyway, sorry, go on. But yeah, he he liked a good sermon, and in order to show that you know he he believed that everybody should have the freedom to practice their religion however they wanted. He would make a point of going to a different church or synagogue every Sunday. Oh, okay. So he was in- inclusive. He was very inclusive. He just liked a good sermon. So he would go to all the different ones across the city, showing, you know, I'm not going to show preferential treatment to uh, the Methodists to one over or the to other. the Baptists or to, you know, whoever. I'm just going to. The Wesleyan church? Yeah, the Wesleyans. I'm going to show that everyone. You know, that is that was the first episode that we did. Yeah, we covered the Wesleyans. Um, I linked it back. Boom. There's a sign, actually, as you drive to our new house that says Wesleyan Church. Yeah, I didn't even know it was a thing, but now I see it everywhere. Mm. It's, it's like one of those, once you've noticed it, it's like when you buy a new car. Yeah, you see them everywhere. You see, you? you've never saw them before, but now the only thing you see is that, that make of car. Yeah. So, yeah, he went um, to a different service each week until he'd made his way around every church that was available, and then he'd oh. start the cycle again. What a hero, By the mid-1860s, Emperor Norton was an intrinsic part of San Francisco. He had been embraced by the population as the emperor, and he would receive salutes and donations in the streets. And in return, he would bestow honours to reward people who had done small good deeds in his presence. Yeah. Often appointing others, particularly children, as king or queen for the day, in acknowledgement of a kindness that had been done. I love that. So the, the phrase, king for a day or queen for a day... There's an argument that it, it originated with Emperor Norton because that was his way of, of paying back a kindness. He'd be like, well, I will now dub thee 
queen, whatever. For a period of 24 hours, you are queen of San Francisco. I love it. It That's great. Great little bit of PR he's got going on there. Yeah. However, in 1867, the entire setup was put in jeopardy by an overzealous rent-a-cop called Armand Barber. Uh, What did he do? Well, see, he wasn't a San Francisco native, and he wasn't aware of Emperor Norton and his unique position within the San Fran society. Okay. He came across Emperor Norton one day, and he understandably came to the conclusion that he'd happened across a person in the midst of a mental breakdown. (laughs) So he decided to take Norton to a place of safety where he would not be... Yeah, he wouldn't be able to harm himself or others. Because if if you don't know and you're walking down the street as a rent-a-cop and somebody comes towards you and starts inspecting your uniform and when you ask them what they're doing, they say, excuse me, I'm the Emperor of the United States. Yeah, and you'd be like, "Uh, you're clearly insane. Yeah. This was after Bummer and Lazarus had died, though, so... To the asylum with uh, you. ...less impressive without his two royal dogs following him. This completely rational decision on the part of Armand was reported by the local newspapers thusly. In what can only be described as the most dastardly of errors, (laughs) Joshua A. Norton was arrested today. He is being held on the ludicrous charge of lunacy... Known and loved by all true San Franciscans as Emperor Norton, this kindly monarch of Montgomery Street is less a lunatic than those who have engineered these trumped-up charges. As they will learn, His Majesty's loyal subjects are fully appraised of this outrage. (laughs) So he's created a character, essentially, and now it's so bonkers, they all love him. Everyone has bought him because it's an in-joke for the city. Yeah. And they... They love to keep it going. And this was just perfect for them. It's like they've arrested our emperor and locked (laughs) him up, calling him a lunatic. What is going to happen now? Naturally, the chief of police himself released Emperor Norton, offering humble apologies for the inconvenience. (laughs) So, again, the chief of police, someone who really has a lot on his plate with a rapidly growing city, took the time to go to the asylum in person to have Emperor Norton released. But this is why, like, local policies and politics matter, because this outsider's come in and been oblivious to the lovable rogue... Yeah. ..that is from their town, city. Although, to be fair, I mean, I, d- I don't know how... What, what Armand was thinking when he saw what, you know, the outrage and the, the public outcry, but Emperor Norton was very magnanimous... Uh, and he agreed to issue an official pardon for Armand. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 don't hold Do you reckon it against people the would have come for him? Possibly. I think it was a very good thing that he said, no, I'm officially stating that I am pardoning this gentleman for yeah, his lapse of judgment. Don't come for him. Yeah, but done in the most Emperor Norton way possible. Yeah. An official pardon for you, sir. <laughs> you're clearly mad. No. <laughs> You've clearly li- like got no legal jurisdiction on anything, and yet everyone's buying it. It just goes to point out, you know, the, the definition of madness, because in this situation, th- there's one rational person there who's going, this man's clearly mad. And he's saying, well, I have 50-plus thousand people who think I'm perfectly sane, dear boy. But that's how people get in, like, uh, bizarre people get into power because all they need is people to rally around them and it's perfectly reasonable what are you talking about 
Donald Trump. Emperor Norton was always looking to improve his capital city of San Francisco, often suggesting elaborate public works for which he would personally approach businesses for contributions. Right. This was really an excuse to approach old friends for money, but the emperor was treated with due deference, and his former colleagues commented that he could always be relied upon to give them sound investment advice that more than made up for his irregular visits. Amazing. So he'd go and he'd be like, I've got this idea that we're going to build a new trolley system for the entire city. And they go, oh, OK. Be like, well, I need £50,000. And they'd say stuff like, well, I can give you $5. Yeah. Um, all, all my money's sort of tied up in other things at the moment, but consider that a down payment. And he could yeah. always graciously accept. It's like a... It was Does a way of begging. Try and- build these products or did he just keep them uh he he kept the money that was being given to him but he did make proclamations that these things should be built okay. um, and that business leaders should come together to to produce to the, the funds for them uh, but apparently when he was sort of sat with these friends even though he's dressed in his garb and he was you know fully in his emperor thing if they asked him for advice on an investment or um, a deal that they were considering he he would give good advice it's like like genuinely still, good advice. They yeah. weren't just humouring him. No, no, no. They would make decisions based upon what he was saying because, you know, before the breakdown, he made a lot of money in San Francisco, so he did have it was an there. eye for it. Yeah, yeah. And he would he would offer that freely, and they kind of felt, well, you know, he comes around once every couple of months. I have to give him five dollars. Uh, he smells a bit, but normally but his tips mean that I'm more than making up for the money I've given him. So. It's, it's all right yeah. to have him come around. And also it breaks up the day, doesn't it? I mean, how often do you get visited by an emperor? And everyone loves a visit from yeah. Emperor Norton. One of the proposed schemes that he proclaimed in uh, 1872 was the building of a bridge to link San Francisco to Oakland. And this scheme... As in the red San Francisco bridge? Well, this scheme was eventually completed. Uh, the bridge was built in 1936, and today it will regularly carry over a quarter of a million people daily. So I've been on that bridge on an open-top bus. Mm. It is very exposed. It is very windy. I genuinely feared for my life. Um, I thought I was going to plummet into the San Francisco Bay and and just never return. Well, do you know, to this day, there remains an active campaign for the Bay Bridge to be renamed the Emperor Norton Bridge in honour of the man who first proposed it. Yeah, it should. Yeah, I think so. On January the 8th, 1880, Emperor Norton was walking the streets of his capital city, the same way he'd been doing for over 20 years. Now, it may have been the knowledge that all of his bonds had just become due, or it may have been his decades of living a semi-destitute life, Either way, Norton suffered a stroke, falling to the floor in front of old St Mary's Cathedral, where he died at the age of only 61. Oh, Emperor, Emperor Norton. Upon searching his rooms, his friends found that he was not blessed financially to the point where he was probably going to end up having a pauper's funeral paid okay. for by the city. Yeah. But the people of San Francisco wouldn't see their emperor depart without due pomp and circumstance. Aww. And they raised the funds to have a proper send-off. How amazing. Community spirit. Oh, yeah. You know, business leaders were putting in thousands <clears throat> to the yeah. pot to make sure that it would be an event. On Sunday, January 10th, 1880, over 10,000 people lined the streets 
to watch the funeral procession of the only emperor of the United States. The San Francisco Chronicle carried the headline, Le Roy est mort, the king is dead. Ah, oh, that's a- so sweet. Amongst his personal effects were letters suggesting that Emperor Norton had been taken in by a hoax, suggesting that he was being considered to marry Queen Victoria in order to once again unify America and England under a monarchy. That's so funny. <laughs> Which would it would have been amazing if it was actually true. Oh, maybe it was. But he apparently, you know, he responded to these letters in all seriousness, and he was he believed he was courting uh, Queen Victoria with a view to uniting their kingdoms. I mean, I don't know what this guy looked like, but I'm not sure, I don't know why anyone would want to court. Uh, I, I mean, you can find pictures of him. Uh, he definitely ate well, um, despite was the fact he that he didn't really ch- have any money. He, chubby, he, chubby chap. He was husky. That's something wrong with that. Yeah, recede, a bit of a receding hairline, good moustache. Oh, we um, like a moustache. Yeah, unkempt at times, but, you know... Aren't we? Aren't we all sometimes? Yeah, you've got to take into account the fact that he was doing all of his royal duties. He was working hard, and he didn't always have time. You know, he yeah, he had a minimal staff of him. Uh, I love that how he's just sort of created this persona. And at first, everyone was just like, "What the hell is going on?" Then all of a sudden, he becomes this staple in the community, and uh, people. Like become like they start to love him. It's like when you you're from a place and someone starts slagging it off. Like you all sort of rally round and get defensive. Like you're allowed to slag it off. Yeah, it's our shithole. Yeah, but can you can't. That. Yeah, you can't. Yeah. This is our emperor. You can't call him insane. Yeah, he's ours. We all know he's insane, but that's not the point. <laughs> In 1934. Emperor Norton's remains were transferred to Woodlawn Memorial Park Cemetery in Colma, California. And to this day, there is a beautiful little headstone which does refer to him as Emperor of the USA and Protector of Mexico. Oh, yeah. You can go and visit if you want to. Yes. 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 And the sources that are used for this little tale. The EmperorNortonTrust.org, which is... Uh, a group of people who have been doing research and collecting all the information they can about Emperor Norton. There are clippings of all of his proclamations that can be found there. Um, They've researched as best they can to piece together the timeline of his life. Um, They bust a few... I I mean, there's a few apocryphal tales and um, maybe things that aren't particularly true. One of the most famous that apparently isn't attributed to him is that he once made a proclamation that any person using the phrase Frisco uh, would be fined because he found it to be a, a wholly unsuitable term. Yeah. And then yeah, I don't, to, I don't, him, to be honest, uh, I don't like directly. that. I don't like it. I, yeah, there's some words that just don't sit right with people, is it? Like shortening of words. Hmm. You know when like everyone's saying like perf now instead of perfect it really annoys me? I've never heard perf. Have you not? You've not seen the adverts on TV? They're like, oh, it's all these people from the reality TV. And they're like, oh, it's Perf with surf, as in the the okay. washing up stuff. But they're like, oh, that's well Perf. It just sounds like... like they're talking about the city of Perth on Western Australia. <sighs> hmm. <clears throat> or the city uh, or the town or of Perthship. Perth that is in Scot- Scotchland. In Scotland. 
Yeah. Uh, the other source I used was Emperor Norton of the United States by a man called Albert Dressler, which was written in 1927. Uh, and he was just a bloke who apparently had collected all the anecdotes from people uh, who'd met him before he before they died. Oh, that's brilliant, though, because if he wouldn't have done that, then a lot of this stuff would have been, would have been lost. lost. Yeah. So, yes, that is the story of Joshua Abraham Norton, the first and only emperor of the United States, despite being a native of Kent. What a lad. Yeah. He lived a life. Uh, do you know what? I forgot he was from Kent. Yeah. It's a British That's history a... podcast. Of course. <laughs> of course. I love it. But it's just glorious. Isn't it? No, that's, that's made my day. I'm very pleased. Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.